Greetings, my friends, and thank you for joining me on this midweek podcast. Something to keep us connected with the Word and connected with one another during this social distancing time, which it sounds like some of the restrictions are going to start to lift in the weeks ahead. So look ahead to some communication from us regarding that situation. I wanted to visit with you today about a particular passage of Scripture that I find really interesting, and it's a great place to unpack some of the language and words of the Bible. When we're studying the Bible and we read passages, it's important for us to, uh, in grasping the concept of what was being said by the author and what were they trying to communicate, that we look at our context and we look at the words used and we look back as much as we can on the translations and things like that as we're trying to grasp the full meaning of what was being spoken by the person who was doing the speaking. And in this case today, we're going to be talking about Jesus. So I would invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Uh, We're going to be looking at a situation that is very well known in the scripture and hopefully unpack it a little bit, maybe learn something new today, maybe get inspired about what Jesus had to say to us. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. And your little header in your Bible may say, the great commandment. Well, that obviously is something we ought to be paying attention to, if that's in fact what it is. We're going to read verses 34 uh, through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So here we are in a situation where Jesus is having these interactions with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it's, uh, if we take note at verse 34, we see that the Pharisees heard that he'd silenced the Sadducees and they gathered together. Well, what would that, what does that really mean? If you know the context of the Pharisees and the Sadducees there. They didn't like each other too much. They were very opposed in their ideologies. Pharisees were very much um, adherent to the traditional Jewish law um, and uh, the commands of scripture and those kinds of things. The Sadducees were a lot more uh, Hellenistic. They had been really influenced by the Greeks and they had some opposing views. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead and things like that. They had some kind of obscure ideas, but the Sadducees generally were a more politically powerful group in Jerusalem at the time, but they were opposed to each other. And I think we could probably think of lots of examples today of two different opposed ideologies and how they like to try and one-up the other frequently. Well, clearly this is a situation where Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. They had Um, asked him some questions about resurrection in the preceding verses, and he refuted their thinking uh, with the scripture. So the Pharisees thought, hey, maybe we like this guy, but 
they went and asked him some questions as well, wanting to test him. And one of the questions was, what is the great commandment in the law? Which is the great commandment? And obviously they adhered a little more strictly to the Old Testament law than their Sadducee opposition. So we know that in this context as we're studying the scripture. We know that was going on. We also know that Jesus was frequently questioned by the groups that were around him. and uh, They tried to trick him sometimes into making a mistake and those kinds of things. And so it was just part of his journey in his few years of ministry here on the earth. But he replies to them in reference to a passage found earlier in the Bible in the book of Deuteronomy, and more specifically Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we'll take a look at that in a minute. But let's continue and analyze what Jesus had to say. He said to him in response to this question, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Okay, well, if I'm wanting to fulfill something that's very important to God and valuable and and uh, don't want to miss it somehow and don't want to make a mistake, and sometimes we can overanalyze things, I think, and kind of miss the point, but this is a good one for us to take a deeper look at. So it starts out with, you shall love. You shall love. Well, what is love, right? Uh, Timeless question, often asked, what is love? And comes with many different thoughts. It comes with many different emotions and perspectives about what love actually is. And because of our experience and things that we have gone through, we sometimes don't always interpret accurately the idea of love or other words that come up. So we have to dive in. What was originally said in this context? How do we, uh, what, what, when they were talking about love in those times, what, what did they mean? And we can go ahead and dissect this and, and look at the original uh, of what was written. And we've talked about this some on Sunday mornings because it's important to grasp the depths and have a good handle on the idea of love. And there are many different words for love, and they, like I said, conjure up different sorts of images or feelings. But in this case, you shall love is really just one word, and it's agapisius. And uh, you maybe have heard like agape before, things like that. And uh, this is really a derivative of that word, agape. It's love. It's a verb. It's this idea of, it, they, they would call it second person singular. So it's from one to another, basically. You've heard of first person, and you've heard of you know being from that person's point of view. And then you've heard of third person, which is like from the outside looking in. Well, this is second person. It's from one directly to another. And I'm not an English major, and I maybe butcher that a little bit, but I that's the way I understand it very basically. And, and that's what it is. It's a verb, uh, second person singular of... Um, of agapo and and it's it's love it's it's like when you love someone you you're wishing them well or you know you you're having a good feeling towards them uh, that you want them to do well it's to take pleasure in or to long for it, it denotes a love of reason okay or esteem so this idea that um 
I, I look at something and I esteem it and respect it, that kind of love. And, and I want it, I take pleasure in it, but I respect it. And, and so it's, it's got uh, more depth to it than, a, than an emotional idea of the word love. But it is an action. And when it says you shall love, it's one word, this idea that you would have this sense towards the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God. One definition I read was a discriminating affection which involves choice and selection. So you're you're you know, when you make a choice about something, you are discriminating, not in our negative social science way of understanding the word discriminate, but it it's the idea that we would make a decision about where to place our affections, where where our uh, and again, not just the physical affections, but things you care about or set your sights on to um, hold in high regard or esteem. And there's a choice involved with that, which really does kind of come colliding with our romantic idea of love uh, in our current culture. But that is what they're, you know, these, this word is communicating. You shall love the Lord your God. So who is the Lord? The Lord your God. Well, Lord is the... Uh, the absolute owner, the master, the someone who has full rights to something. So that 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 word, Kyrian, it's like a. I, I'm I'm gonna butcher all the pronouncements, I'm sure, but it does convey that idea of master and someone who owns all things and has full rights. And then your God, um, that the the idea of God is a you know supreme being, the ultimate being. So. The Lord, the master, ultimate being. So you are to prefer, give preference to, esteem, to um, long for, and take pleasure in the master supreme being, in God himself. You are to love, you shall love the Lord your God. So you're really conveying that idea of God being ultimate. Now we run into this portion of the passage that becomes, I don't know, it's not really controversial, but it just is something that um, gets looked at closely quite a bit because of the language issues. So Jesus is quoting out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, and I'm just going to turn back there real quick and read that to you. Chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, verses 4 through 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord, is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Okay, so did Jesus misquote the Old Testament passage? No, we certainly do not believe that. But we are dealing with a lang language transition here from the Old Hebrew into the more modern languages that were used at the time of Jesus, and so we see languages like Greek and Aramaic um, also being included in uh, the people of the time. And so then when we're reading the Gospels, we are reading books that were actually written in Greek. So they were taking uh, Hebrew language or and uh, Hebrew concepts and translating them into Greek language because that's where the Gospel was going after Jesus' death was to the Greek world. And so there was a language change that took place. Well, if you know anything about languages, words don't always directly correlate from one language to another. 
the idea of a word in English may not have an exact match in, say, French or Russian, but there are other words that maybe can convey the idea as closely as possible. So we run into that situation here in the Gospels. We actually see that in the equivalent passages uh, in Mark and Luke of this same story, um, they account for it in slightly different language. Uh, we see here that uh, Jesus, Matthew records Jesus as having said, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Mark refers to heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Luke refers to heart, soul, strength, and mind. So is there a discrepancy here in the scripture? No, there is not. And I'm going to explain some of that to you in looking at these translations. Okay, so uh, rather than diving into the Hebrew side of this, we're just going to look at some of the Greek words that were used in uh, Matthew's account. We're going to first of all look at the word heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Well, what is that word heart? Well, um, like many of our English words, you will hear something familiar from the Greek, and it's the word cardia. And all my medical friends out there will know exactly what you think of when you hear the word cardia. Uh, cardiac arrest, cardi, cardio, cardiology, um, there's lots of different words and they're associated with the heart. And literally, it's the physical heart. Now what's interesting about this is, um, I did not go and look these all up myself to verify this is true, but some of the research I ran across said that the word heart is mentioned 800 times in the Bible and never once referring to the literal pounding heart in your chest. But there's a reason that we use that word. And I think it's worth noting at this point that we, particularly in our uh, culture in our modern age, um, after the age of rationalism, we have this tendency to really want to compartmentalize things into very separate and distinct, distinguishable categories. But reality just isn't always that possible. And so when we are talking about our heart, all of us, I think, are um, familiar with the idea that we got heart broke. Well, your heart didn't literally break. But that ache in the, the center of our being um, is like having a broken heart. Well, it doesn't literally mean that the heart is broken. And so that same concept applies here and apparently has for thousands of years. And I think it has to do with that we are complex beings. And when we feel things, we feel them in the whole of who we are. We feel them in our chest. We feel it in our head. We feel it in our gut. And so even though it's not something that's tangible in those places, it sure seems tangible because we're complex beings that are blended um, uh, parts of who we are. And so when we use the word heart, you know, it, it was the center of the body. It pumps the blood any, everywhere. It, it was really considered the, the center of life and, and center of our being, it, the desire producer, where we get our desire. So Again, that would cause certain things to make sense in our current context when we use words like had my heart set on or my heart was broken by because there's a desire inside of us 
And then sometimes it, it really does feel like it's in our chest, doesn't it? It's, it's in our torso somewhere, and it's it's pushing um, to be met. And, and that's where we get the idea of, of using the literal heart as a metaphor for the desire um, producing, the desire decisions that we make. Are, it really, it's our, it's our capacity for moral preference or the seat of our will and our character is in our heart. So it can be very interesting if you contemplate this idea that uh, I might know something in my head. I know something is wrong. I know something won't be good for me. I know something is the wrong decision. But the seat of my will is in my heart, and it desires something contrary to my rationale, and usually will get its way. And so when we talk about the heart, even in not just in modern times, but even in, in in the biblical ways of using the word, it does refer to something inside of us where um, it's the center of our being, and, and our desires are produced there. Our, our capacity for moral preference is there. It is the seat of our will and our character in the heart. So, we, what does it mean to love the Lord your God, the Master Supreme Being, to give preference to Him with? the seat of my desire inside of me that I would give myself in that way. So love the Lord your God with all your cardia, your heart, not just your physical heart, but that part of your being that drives that part of who you are. The second word is soul. Love the Lord your God with all your soul. Now, the Greek word for soul here is psyche. Well, where do we get this? Psychiatric, and those kinds of things. We have psychology. And it's a little bit different though in in the communication of this word soul in the Greek. It's it, it really is reflective of that moment and we see it in Genesis when God breathed into man and he became a living soul or spirit. It's where the breath of life resides in us. It's it's that uh, inner invisible breath from God that gives us our core being and therefore makes it a bit mysterious to understand or comprehend exactly what that means. And then mind, to love the Lord your God with all your mind. Dinoia, it's all of your understanding, your intellect. Um, <clears throat> it, would, it would be this idea coming from two words, die. You know, that's two. You know, we would say die. Uh, virgin, you know, goes two ways or whatever and splits up. Well, die, noia, die is like it's a side to side from one side or the other. And then noia is to use the mind. So if you have this things going side to side in the use of your mind, it's your ability to decide. It's, it's understanding, it's intellect, it's rationale, it's the ability to evaluate information and and go back and forth with it to make decisions. It's, it's, um, yeah, so that's what that word means in the Greek. So we run into this issue where um, these authors are trying to translate what Jesus said into an understandable Greek language. And so they choose uh, different words to do it, like we just discussed, uh, both Mark and Luke. Um, rather than just saying mind, they do mind and strength. And that hails back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, where in the Hebrew, the word translates to all your might. So your might has to do with your your ability. When we think of might, we think 
more often I think in physical mightiness uh, but but really it has to do with your ability and so um, there's a power word there with all your all your power and um, so it, it, it conveys this idea I think of um, uh, all of your capability so your mind is like you know, we would in our culture we would think your mind is what drives your capability more than anything, and <clears throat> I think that's debatable. But it's an interesting point that um, uh, that 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 we would, um, you know, with all of who we are, uh, the mightiness of our ability, every everything we have, all the capacity we have uh, in ourselves to to love God. Okay, so. I don't think it's rocket science to just stop and zoom out for a second and say, love the Lord your God with all that you are, every part of your being. So whether we're using the, the Greek or the Hebrew words to translate the full understanding of the scripture, we know it It, it seems that, they're, uh, that Jesus is saying uh, to the whole of who you are, to love God, to give God preference with all you are, to hold him in esteem with all you are to long for him with all you are to take pleasure in him with all that you are the whole of your being um, the ability to make a choice about your affections which is the love which involves that choice the whole of you towards god so there's a there's a powerfulness um to the way this passage is framed it is the great and first commandment it precedes all things out of all things this must derive so if we're trying to love God without giving up our actual selves in other words if we're just going through the physical motions if we're just checking the boxes then that's not really following God's commands he's really after the whole of who you are not just the actions you're capable of taking he wants the heart very important and powerful stuff for us to be considering in this passage. And of course, it goes on to say, and the second is like it, you shall love, same word, your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so we see this is a very important concept that um, we would look outside of ourselves. I think it goes back to that idea of love and and it's, you know, the verb being the second person singular. It's something where it, one person is giving it towards another. It's, it's an external. It goes outside of us. It isn't about us. It's about others. There's an outward focus and an outward looking of the word love, whether it be outward towards God and giving him preference or whether it's outward towards our neighbor and giving them preference. And I think that's a very challenging thing when we stop and think of all of our real life examples of the people we interact with and communicate with, are we actually loving them? Are we actually giving preference to them? Or are we considering our own values and our own opinions and our own thoughts about things to be of greater value? And that's a narrow road, a, a razor's edge to walk because the scripture calls us to love our neighbor as we would even ourselves. And it's easy to give preference to ourselves and what we want and what we think is right and what we desire. But it's hard then to give preference to someone else, just like it's hard to give preference to God. I want to be in control of my own life. I want to make my own decisions. Well, that's not loving God, and it's not loving your neighbor. God has called us ultimately to look outward. I think that's where, that's a lot of what that word love 
seems to bring up is the idea of an outward preference and an outward looking. There is lots more that we could dive into on the translations of these words. Looking back into the Hebrew uh, would be very good. There's a lot of um, little tidbits in there to help color this picture more. And uh, But I think at the end of the day, the meaning doesn't change specifically, but some of the details surrounding it uh, make it very interesting. I think that's about all I'm going to dive into today. And... Uh, I hope you really enjoyed it. Stay tuned for some communication coming out throughout the week with the restrictions lifting and what our plan is going to be moving uh, in the days ahead. I appreciate everyone's cooperation and patience during this time and appreciate your consideration of your neighbors and those who um, have uh, been compromised in their health. We have lost a couple of people uh, that we are aware of both in regions beyond and then extended family of ours, um, friends. So, uh, it is sad and, uh, but I do appreciate that people have made the effort to, um, treat one another with love and, and to respect what's going on around them. And so there you go. Appreciate your time today. I hope you have a great day and we'll talk to you soon.